0: Thanks, Luke. Peter had also mentioned to me in the foyer before the service that if you have any tools to bring to that uh, to that workday, feel free to uh, to load up any any garden tools or anything you can use to to dig or prune or cut or chop or things like that to help out with uh, with that workday. We certainly appreciate seeing you out there. Well, today we are going to be continuing this series called The Pursuit. Uh, we're going to be starting with the the first of what actually is a kind of a two part look at. Um, a key aspect of our Christian life uh, that we sometimes refer to as fellowship. Now, you've probably heard that word before. Shout, fellowship is used, uh, kind of means to, to share in common, to share in community. You may have heard it used in the term uh, fellowship of all believers, which kind of refers to, you know, a lot of people that are here, people who uh, the people who are followers of Jesus Christ who come together. We use the word fellowship for fellowship hall, a place we may have a potluck uh, we talk about having fellowship if we meet with somebody in a restaurant, in a coffee shop, in a home. We can actually use it as a verb and say we're fellowshipping. We can use it as a verb, not just even a, in the other form. Uh, of course, then there's the fellowship of the ring from Lord of the Rings, of course. It's probably the first thing that might come to mind for some people. But we as a church, we as West Meadows Baptist Church, are a fellowship of followers of Jesus Christ. And like many, many other churches who are a fellowship of followers of Jesus Christ. There's two aspects to this that's going to form what we talk about this week and what we talk about next week. The first aspect of fellowship is this, this idea of what we can sometimes call in-reach. We're going to talk about that today, this idea of in-reach, where we as a local church, as as an assembly of people, are called to love one another, to to encourage, to support, to disciple one another under this banner of unity. And then next week, we're going to pick that up and and continue talking about it in terms of of outreach. This idea that we are a local church as a gathering, a body of people who are called out to be on mission. It's not just a call into the building, into fellowship. It's also a call out to to go take the good news to the nations. Now, in both cases, people have this God-given, innate desire and need for community. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. That's sort of this factory default built into all human beings is we have this desire and this need to seek out and to find community. Sociologists have studied this for, for years and years, and, and they consistently come back to see an increase uh, in a person's desire for community, which correlates with the decrease in a person's ability to achieve community. That's a growing problem that we actually find in our society. There's this growing increase in desire for it because there's a decrease in the ability to achieve it. Last year, in fact, there were some sociologists who did some surveys in Vancouver, and they they surveyed over 4,000 people. And they found out that a third of those that they surveyed stated that they feel more alone than they would like to. They also found in other surveys that in a period between 1984 and 2005, roughly 20 years, there was a 30% drop in what people would call real friends. And at the same time, a 30% increase that people said they had trouble making new friends. So this problem seems to be growing. And over the same time span, they found that the sale of single-serve cookware, single-serve teapots, single-serve coffee makers has increased by 140%. Because it feels like society is getting a little more isolated, a little more individualistic, if you will. And now loneliness and isolation is not just a small issue. Because along with all of this research, they've also looked into the physiological and emotional impact that it can have upon a person. And through these studies, they've found and determined that loneliness actually has more of an effect upon you physically than things like obesity and inactivity. Now, we hear all the time about, about watch your weight and make sure you live an active lifestyle, but it turns out loneliness is more serious than that. Some studies have gone as far as to equate loneliness and the detrimental impact it has upon us as the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day and how it will affect your lifespan and affect your life. So it seems through these studies that life in general was never meant to be done alone. And I would suggest to you today that the Christian life in particular, the Christian journey in particular, was never meant to be a solo sport. Imagine, for example, if you were on a football team of one (laughs) against a team of 12. You would get run over every play. You would not want to play the game anymore. Imagine if you were in a relay race and you had no one to pass the baton to. You would come in last place every time. If you were in a military formation and there was no one to stand at your side and there was no one to guard your back, it would be the shortest battle in history. Community is necessary in so many areas of our lives. It's even necessary in our humor. You know, for example, how many Baptists does it take to screw in a light bulb? You're probably wondering. The answer is 15. It takes 15 Baptists to screw in a light bulb because you need one to change the light bulb. And then you need to form three committees to approve the change. And then you have to decide who's going to bring the potato salad after it's changed. So, so it takes 15 people. Even in Baptist church, community is necessary. See, now none of this was a surprise to Jesus, however. Because as we look at his life through the Gospels, we see that he modeled community for us. He had these three people who were close on an inner three that he shared intimately with. He had the disciples that he, he journeyed with and mentored and walked for three and a half years with. And then we see crowds beyond that he was interacting with. He modeled community for us. And it seems that he also knew, from some of the final words that he shared in the prayers before he was taken and crucified, that he understood that if we were going to be successful in our pursuit of him, if we were going to be successful in our Christian journey, that we too needed community. Because this is more of a team sport than a solo pursuit, because the Christian life was never meant to be a solo pursuit. It's not surprising that research confirms this as well and actually says that one of the best ways to combat loneliness, one of the best ways to overcome that is to get connected with a local church, is what they say, and that the local church should be and potentially could be one of the best communities you could ever be a part of. And it would combat these issues with loneliness and the detrimental effects with them. And that is the potential reality that exists for us and exists for the community around us. But let's be honest for a second. Is that your experience with the local church? Can you honestly say the local church is the best community you've ever been a part of? I'm glad to hear that. Because a lot of people wouldn't say that. And if you ask the world around us, what do you think they would say? Does the society around us think it's the greatest church? If you look at how the city zones neighborhoods nowadays, quite often they don't leave space for the local church. Quite often they zone it for schools and neighborhoods and maybe a community center, but they don't leave it for the local church. But I would suggest to you that if the society saw the local church as a necessary stakeholder, as the best community possible, they would make sure they zone that neighborhood for a church because it was an asset to the area. So leads to a question. Why is that not happening? Like, what went wrong along the way? If this is the potential, if we have everything we need to be the best community possible, and there are people here who experience that genuinely, then why is not everybody else experiencing that? Well, I want to take a few minutes today to start unpacking that and to examine what Jesus desired the church to be and to consider how we may be able to take steps to make that a reality within our own lives and within the community around us. And then next week, we'll take it a step further to say, how can we expand that so people who are not currently connected can experience that for themselves and be brought into fellowship? Now, at times, we hear people say things like, uh, I love Jesus, but I'm just not so fond of the church. Or they'll say things like, and I've heard people say this a number of times, I'm, I'm good with my relationship with God. You know, Jesus and I are good. I'm just not sure I need other people involved in that. I'm not sure I need to really go to services and and share my feelings and share my faith. I'm just good. Me and God, we're good. Just the two of us. You know, when I hear that, I think it's actually more of a commentary upon what they have come to see the church as, as opposed to what Jesus really taught us the church was to be and how it was to be shaped. Now, Jesus didn't use the word church very often. He actually used it very, very few times. But one of the most critical times he used it was found in Matthew chapter 16 starting in verse 13, which is a very familiar story to a lot of us who have have read through the Gospel of Matthew. And and in this account, we see Jesus sitting with his disciples, and and after a little while, he says, who do people say that I am? They think for a second, and they respond back. Some say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and yet others suggest that you're Jeremiah or some other prophet from long ago. In, In truth, people really weren't quite sure who Jesus was at this stage. And so then he looks at these men who have been journeying with him, and he'd been teaching, and they had seen his miracles. And he says, but but you, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, as a spokesman for the group, he declares, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock, upon this confession, of who Jesus is. Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now in time after this, each of the disciples would make similar professions of faith and they would also go on to teach and position Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, as the cornerstone of the churches that were being established. Now that term cornerstone is is not too familiar in our world today, but but when you built a building, especially out of stone, the cornerstone is by far the most important piece you have put in place. It was quite often the largest, and it was often the had to be the first rock that was put in place, and it needed to be perfect, because every wall, every measurement, every angle came off of that cornerstone. And if it wasn't perfect, your building may not be square. Your walls may not be straight. It may not even have the ability to stand up if your cornerstone is not perfect when you put it in place. In, in construction terms, if if your cornerstone was off by even one degree, if it was supposed to be a 90-degree angle but it was 89 or it was 91, it, just one angle, even just one angle, margin of error, after a 60-foot span, your wall would be out by a foot. And you can imagine how much more exponentially that grows if it was off. But now it's important to understand that when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building. We're not talking about even the services. We're not even talking about a, like a meeting time. If you were to ask Jesus about his church, He would, of which he is the cornerstone, he would not give you an address. Instead, he would point you to a people. He would point you to a fellowship, a, a group of individuals who hold one thing in common, as foundational to who they are. They would hold in common their belief and their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the perfect son of the living God. Now, in one sense, this is, draws us into this understanding of being part of a universal church, uh, of all people, of all followers, of all places who have that profession of faith. And this is alluded to in 1st Corinthians where it says, for we are all, for we were all baptized in one spirit, so form one body. And now if you are here and you have taken that step of faith where you have accepted that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins, if you have confessed those sins to him and confessed your need for him and you desire to have him walk with you to help guide you through this life and you are pursuing a deeper growth of life with him, then you have joined the billions of people that are part of that universal church and there is a day coming when we will all be assembled as a great multitude in heaven and we will rejoice and we will sing praises to Jesus our Lord. That day is coming and I cannot wait for that day to come. But remember, the journey is just as important as the destination. And so for now, we are also called to participate and to support the mission of the local church of that local church of which we are also a part of. You see, immediately following Jesus' ascension into heaven, we start to see the local church take shape. This assembly of all who followed him within a particular area. And we see this in the book of Acts, where the the book of Acts opens with with, uh, Jesus' final words to his disciples. And he tells them to not leave Jerusalem yet, but, but to wait, to stay there and to wait. And so then a few days later, On the day of Pentecost, it's referred to, which happens to actually be today on the Christian calendar. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon his followers as he promised it would. And part of what happened at that moment is they started speaking in different languages as they were praising God and proclaiming the truth about who Jesus was. Now this was significant because at this time when it took place there were they were God fearing Jews from all nations of, of all different languages who had come to Jerusalem for a festival, and they were able to hear these people proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ in their own in their own languages. Now many were amazed at the disciples' sudden bilingualness that they all of a sudden had. Others thought they had been taken to the bottle a little early in the day, and were drunk is what they accused them of. But Peter stood up to set the record straight. He said, no, it's early in the morning. We haven't been drinking. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to explain to them who Jesus was and what Jesus had accomplished. And then he calls them to, be, to repent and be baptized. And we're told at that story in Acts 2 that that day over 3,000 gave their lives to Jesus that day. And what happens next in the story? Well, the very next thing the book of Acts tells us is it starts to give us a description of the first church, of a first church that some of these believers began to form. And we read about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And it begins to describe this by saying, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And if we continue to read, it says, everyone was filled with awe. at at the many wonders and the signs being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They, They even sold their property. They sold their possessions. And what they got from that, they would use to give to somebody who had need. And every single day, they would come together, and they would meet in the temple courts. And they would come together, and they would break bread together in the homes. And they would eat together. And they had these glad, sincere hearts of being in this fellowship with each other. They were praising God, people around them. They had favor of the people around them, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's an amazing picture. It paints this amazing picture of the first church. Can you imagine what that would have been like, to be a part of that church? Uh, The feeling you would have being amongst that community, the, the atmosphere would be electric in that moment, where there's this continual sense of awe, where every day you're waking up going, I can't. Wait to see what happens today because there are miracles going on all over the place. And these people I keep bumping into, we got everything in common. You know, I had this need before, but I don't anymore. It was dealt with. There was no such thing as an unmet need within this group. And we got together every day. We get up, we go to work, and I couldn't wait for the day to end because then we would come together again. We would share a meal and we would pray together and we would have these glad hearts to be together. And the coolest thing is our neighbors like us. Even our neighbors like us being around. The neighbors think this is awesome having the church in the middle and our neighbors are starting to join in the fellowship and we just keep on growing. The extroverts in the crowd probably think that's pretty awesome. The introverts, I think you guys could warm up to this utopia as well. <laughs> I really believe you could. You know, the perf- the perfection that is somewhat described in this church has at times been compared to the future kingdom of heaven. It's also what time has been compared, compared to the perfection that we find in the Garden of Eden. And, and in these situations where we see the uh, just exemplifying God's perfect creation, his perfect community, his perfect order of how he longed for things to be, that it was pure, and that in every way it glorified him. You know, in, in the Garden of Eden, for example, after God had finished creating You find this in Genesis 1.31. It says, And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Some translations take that to say it was exceedingly excellent in every way possible. And and there's parallels drawn to this Acts 2 church by some people, where it looks at this and says, this was a a community created by God that emulated God's perfect design and plan, and it was pure and it glorified Him in every way. So if that's the starting point, what happened? What happened to that? Why is that not the experience that so many people can share in today, if that's where it started? Well, I suggest to you the answer to that question draws us back to Eden as well. Because many of us are familiar with that story, that into God's perfect order entered corruption, entered selfishness and sinfulness. You see, the devil was able to plant these seeds of doubt and able to bring these questions to people's minds in the children of God. And the power of these lies led to people departing from God's original design, and we see in that original story the fall of humanity. So what happened in the church? Well, in chapter 2, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000-plus people are, are brought to Christ that day, and they form this perfect community. But let's keep reading. We get to chapter 4, and external people begin to react and have concerns about the teachings and what's going on in there. We get to chapter 5, and we see that internal problems begin to arrive as Ananias and Sapphira try and cheat the church and try and cheat God. Chapter 6, persecution increases, and all of a sudden this change happens where this perfect peace and harmony that once existed is starting to be replaced. It's starting to be eroded away by external pressures these external forces, by perceived dangers and by internal discourse. Chapter 4, 5, and 6. Already those things are taking place. And eventually we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is pleading with people, don't stop meeting together. Continue to meet together by the end of that generation. What can we learn from this? I think there's one really important lesson that is so foundational to this. You see, the problem has never been in the creation of the church. God has looked after that. God has looked after the building of his church, and he promised that the gates of hell would never defeat it. The building of it has never been the problem. The challenge for us is in the maintenance of it. The challenge that we're left with is to maintain it. Because even though Christ is the cornerstone of the church, fallen people form the body of the church. Now, I believe that we are all good people with good hearts and good intentions, but if we can just get real honest for a second, isn't it true that all of us, myself included, we have this tendency to lean towards selfishness? There's this constant battle that exists within us at times for self-preservation and a pride that we have to always be on guard against. And those types of, of directions and drives fall into the category of the self, of the me, focusing upon the me which is why I think the solution to overcoming these potentially destructive elements is found not in the me, but in the we. Becoming others focused on how we live our lives and how we live in community. And moving from the me to the we is so much of what we find in the instructions of these letters that were written to the churches. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that it starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the book of Acts. And then following the book of Acts, we get this long section of letters that were written to churches that were started in the very early stages of the church era. Now, the good news is, is that these letters we have that we can look at are full of insights and they're full of directions on how to do Christian community and, and what Christian conduct looks like. And, and they give us wonderful teachings about who Jesus was. The bad news is that even though they were written almost 2,000 years ago, we're still struggling with the same stuff. Is the bad news. The good news is we still have the instruction book on how to battle that stuff. Now, one such letter that was written by Paul to a church he started in Ephesus focuses particularly in one area upon the need for unity. Now, I have mentioned this before, and I am sure I'll mention it again. Unity is one of my highest values within the church. Because I adamantly believe that if we can preserve unity, then it doesn't matter what other challenge or what other disagreement or what other misunderstanding we may bump into, if we can preserve unity, we can deal with that in a, in a sense of safety and freedom. If we can preserve unity. And I think we've observed the opposite of that in some of our lives as well, where if you've ever been part of a, a family perhaps or in a situation or a relationship where somebody said, if you don't agree with me, if you don't do what I want you to do, if you don't go along with me, then I'm out of here. If you've ever uttered those words, that is a step toward disunity as opposed towards unity. When we utter words like that or have ultimatums or, or that's the perspective we hold, it has an effect that causes divides, it can start to tear our relationships and fracture our trust. We know the pain that can cause in relationships, in friendships, we know the pain it can cause in families. Many of us also will know the pain that can cause within a church as well. And here's the sad thing about the church when it happens in the church, is people don't often leave the church and go find another group or another church. Quite often they just decide to leave the church. And over time, they end up having their faith eroded as well because they've fallen out of fellowship and fallen out of community. Now, knowing the high cost that disunity can cause to a church, Paul says this to the Ephesian church. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace. Because there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and who is in all. Now, Paul opens and closes this six verse passage with a call for us to remember and to pay attention to the reason and the motivation for our unity that regardless of any differences we may have upon us, there is one thing that all of us in this building and all of us within the church universal hold in common, and that is our salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. That is the one thing that all of us hold who are within that universal and committed to the local church. For those of us who are all followers of Jesus, we also then have a calling. It is a calling to pursue a life that is worthy of that salvation that we all share. And as we just mentioned a moment ago, that sometimes we aren't always moving in that direction. Sometimes if we're left to our own devices, we move more towards the self rather than towards the we. And if we can admit it for a second, we know that that wounds ourselves and it wounds other people at times. But when we came to know Jesus Christ personally, when we came to enter into that fellowship of which he is the cornerstone, we entered into that fellowship of which we all share that one thing at minimum in common, we then entered into a situation where we have every reason and we have every ability to not focus upon the self, but to move towards doing away with it. Because if we keep reading through Ephesians 4, we eventually get to a part where, where Paul says to put off the old self, which is being corrupt. To put off the old self, which is focused with these deceitful, deceitful desires. But instead to be made new in our attitude and to be made new in our minds and to put on the new self and be created to be like God. If God's love is so great, if His power to save is so incredible, if He has granted us such reconciliation between us and the Father, then that is the life we are called to live accordingly. One of love and of unity and reconciliation, which is what we've experienced from the Father, and then need to live out among one another. Well, what does that look like? Well, among other things, this passage tells us to conduct ourselves and one another in a manner that, defi- that is defined by Christ-like characteristics. Things like humility, a gentleness, patience, and love. Now, in each of these things, these this humility, gentleness, patience, and love these are an attack upon the ego. These are an attack upon the self that draws us together in a weeness and directs us to uphold that unity and fellowship. Humility. It's considered a weakness in our society. It was considered a weakness in Paul's society as well. But it is actually what Jesus called us to in God's economy. He says that we should have the attitude of a servant. That we should think of others first, ahead of ourselves. This idea of gentleness. Gentleness is is not weakness. Gentleness is not being just like a wet noodle, where you stand for nothing and have no backbone. But instead, gentleness you could think of in terms of like a stallion. A powerful, powerful, Horse, a stallion. That hasn't lost its power, hasn't lost all that goes in being a stallion, but it has restrained behavior and allows itself to be saddled. It hasn't lost its power, but it's a restrained behavior towards others. Patience requires us to show respect, to endure annoyances with one another. Can we ask about that too? We annoy each other sometimes. I think there's truth in that probably. You can't put more than two people together for a long period of time and eventually that will happen. But patience, we show respect to one another and we bear with one another. And then love, gosh, volumes have been written on love. But in this particular con- aspect here, this, the love experienced in Christ that must then be extended to all, where first love comes from God and then we show love to God, which then leads us to love for other people that we'd have this love. Now keep in mind, though, that this unity already exists because this unity within the fellowship is not based upon these characteristics, but rather it is based upon the unchanging commonality we share in Christ, that in Him we have our unity as one body in one spirit. We share in one hope, one Lord, and one faith because our need is not the establishment of that. Our need is our ability to honor it, to respect it, and to maintain that within our community. And this can be achieved through protecting one another, and it can be achieved through building trust with one another. Consider, for example, have you ever been in a situation where you you don't quite know a person as well as you'd like, and maybe you have a concern or a question about them? And then you find yourself in a situation where your conversation about that person might, might end up on the side of gossip a little bit. And there's a blank between what you know about them and what you think about them, and you choose to fill that blank in with suspicion. What happens then? That suspicion starts a dow- downward spiral of negative thinking and attitude, and even maybe a passionate response to that person. You know, for example, if I see Pastor Luke leave early one day, I have a choice. I can sit back and go, That's slacker. I'm out here busting my butt, and he's going home to watch TV. Or Ryan left early. There's a game on at 5 o'clock, I bet you. I have a choice. I have a choice I can make. I can think suspicion with a downward spiral in our opinion one another or I can choose to fill that gap with trust. I can choose to fill it with trust and then respect the individual enough to go to them, talk to them and fill it with fact after the fact as well. Or perhaps you've been in a situation where you walk in the doors down here in the foyer and you look down the long hallway and oh, there she is. She hasn't seen me yet. We head the other direction. Come on, it happens, right? This isn't easy, but it's true. Why does it happen? Well, maybe there's something unresolved between us. Maybe maybe there's an anger. Maybe there's a resentment. Maybe there's something that's just there. But we have another option. Instead of going away from them in the direction of disunity, we can courageously go towards them in the direction of unity. And maybe even have enough courage to share the concern in a polite, respectful manner. Or about a time when maybe you've been caught up in sin or you've made a bad decision that you're really embarrassed about. And you can feel that shame, the guilt can, can start to overwhelm you. And in these moments, we can have a tendency to withdraw. We have a tendency to back away and avoid. But that is one of the tools the enemy uses to separate us from the group. And once he can separate us, we can head into this area of isolation. But instead, can we push in? Can we push in towards community to go to a trusted friend to confess those sins? To share that burden, to be open about the failure. And now if you happen to be on the receiving side of that, you have a desire to help. I, I believe we have good hearts, good intentions. We want to help. But in our helping, sometimes, I'll admit it, sometimes you hear that little critical voice. You may not say it, but it starts with thoughts inside and we get a little judgy at times. I want to suggest to you that's not the time to allow that voice to have, to have space within the conversation. Especially if you have no relationship with this person. It is not the time for that voice to come out. Especially if they're not giving you permission to speak into their life in that manner. But rather, can we come alongside them? Can we encourage them? Can we gently point them towards Christ? Towards his love, his grace, and his truth? Now, I could go on and give, giving examples, but I think you get the idea is that we're called in our pursuit to work towards maintaining this authentic Christian community. And these are just a few of the ways we can do that. Because the Christian life was never meant to be a solo pursuit. Rather, it's more of a team sport. And it's not only something that we are all called to be within the church, but it's something we all need. Ladies and gentlemen, we need each other. We need each other in healthy, authentic community. You know, Nadine and I have so deeply appreciated the warm, welcoming community that we've been able to become a part of here at West Meadows. And on a regular basis, I talk to people who are also new among us and come through these doors, and they say things like, It was so warmly, I was so warmly welcomed, and and you know, people are so friendly. There's even one couple I talked to who said, you know, we just stopped by one Sunday and, and it was so warm welcome, we just decided to stay. And they joined our church. As one of your pastors, it gives me a great sense of joy and thankfulness for you that that exists and that good community does exist within this church. You know, when God built this church, God built it and established it a long time ago. And we've maintained it and brought it to this point. And now going forward, I want to ask if you join me in being vigilant in our maintenance of it. Be vigilant in our maintenance of preserving that community so that we will be a place where we continue to be warm and welcoming to all whom God brings our way. We can be a place where people have an opportunity to discover their spiritual gifts and then use those in fruitful ministry. A place where if somebody has a wounded heart, that that they can choose to move towards community rather than towards the enemy's tools of isolation and independence. A place where we can celebrate diversity of background and culture and see that mosaic as God's masterpiece. A place where if theological or directional challenges exist, we do not condemn people. But we come alongside and we journey together with people as iron sharpens iron. So we can resolve these types of things. A place that is so defined by love and unity that people who are outside the fellowship, when they catch a glimpse of it, they know they're missing out on something. And they just want to have some of that for themselves and they long for community. And so it draws them into this community which then brings them not only into fellowship with us, but into fellowship with God, more importantly. A place that we never stop proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. We never stop praying for one another. We never stop fellowshipping in the foyer, in the homes, and in restaurants and coffee shops. A place where we never stop sharing the Lord's Supper, understanding and remembering the price of our salvation that brought us into the universal church, became the cornerstone of the local church, and is the basis for our love, and is the basis for our unity as followers of Jesus Christ. I pray we can be that, and we'll continue to be that going forward. How was I close today? I felt that I would close with the words of Jesus. Because he was concerned about this. One of the final things he prayed, one of the final things recorded in the Gospel of John before he was arrested, was his concern for the unity of his followers, his concern for the future of the church. And I invite the worship team to come up as I share these words with you. He said this near the end of his prayer. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. And if that happens, he says, then the world will know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Amen.